Kate Sussman, and I'm a professor of biology, neuroscience, and environmental studies at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Poughkeepsie is nestled in the picturesque Hudson Valley. This is the first of eight episodes that examine the toxic practice of having a lawn. Virtually anywhere in the suburbs in the United States, houses sit on plots of grass. Wait, wait a minute. Okay, let's try that again. Virtually anywhere in the suburbs in the United States, houses sit on plots of grass with a front yard and a backyard. I recently took a trip by airplane from upstate New York to California. Wherever there were cities, they were enveloped by little square and rectangular blocks of green. America is literally obsessed with the uniform, highly manicured lawn in parks, golf courses, and individual yards. I have a love-hate relationship with my lawn, and after more than 20 years in this neat, small, suburban neighborhood, I've come to feel very strongly antagonistic towards our collective obsession with perfect green lawns. Our house sits on almost an acre of land with a large front and pretty huge backyard with large expanses of grass interrupted by a variety of trees. There's maple, cedar, walnut, magnolia, locust. When we were searching for a house for our young and growing family, we visited this house in February when the ground was covered with snow and the sky seemed endlessly filled with dark brooding clouds. We were shown a printout of the ad for the house, and it stated that the yard was, quote, park-like, filled with stately trees, and, quote, a perfect place to enjoy the out-of-doors. We didn't pay as much attention to that as we did to the layout of the house, which had bedrooms upstairs and a room that could serve as a home office on the same floor as the kitchen, living, and family rooms. This was important for me since I do a lot of class prep at night after the kids go to bed. We moved into the house in April and were astounded by the profusion of blooms on the 18 trees and two huge grassy fields, one in the front, one in the back. Wow. It really was like a park. What a great place for our kids to run around, we thought. Within a week, we realized that we had a big job on our hands taking care of this yard and had to get a -a ride-a-mower. The push mower that had sufficed for our tiny yard in the city of Poughkeepsie wasn't up to the challenge of this suburban parkland. I'm a biologist, and my main area of study is how pesticides and pex- pesticide mixtures affect soil nematodes, who are the critters that make our food waste into compost. Given what my research has shown, more on this in another podcast, I do not apply pesticides or fertilizers to my yard. As a result, the grass isn't really grass, but a complex mixture of dandelions, clover, buttercups, fescue, crabgrass, and other types of grasses. In contrast, my next-door neighbor's grass is a true monoculture, carefully maintained, chemically treated, and doted on, to ensure that no other species can wedge itself in. I take a perverse pleasure sometimes knowing that my dandelion seeds likely blow over to her yard and might even give her a few palpitations. Of course, she responds with the toxic fumes from her lawn service's pesticide applications. I have to hold my breath as I pass her yard when her little yellow flags announce the poisonous application. Don't get the wrong impression here. We are good friends and friendly neighbors, despite our opposing views about yards. 
The next few podcasts in this series will consider the costs, economic, environmental, human health of this absurd obsession. For those millions of us in the U.S. who have a house with a yard, the household chores associated with our yards begin in early spring and continue until the leaves are all down in the late fall to early winter. We spend the weekend or weeknights in the spring, summer, and fall tending to this grass. Many folks want their grass to look uniform and manicured into textured diagonal stripes. They go back and forth, back and forth to lay down these precise markings. This perfectionism adds even more time and effort to the task of shearing the blades of grass. Some homeowner associations even have requirements on how long the grass can become. Just cutting the grass, though, is only part of the process. We cut it, or pay someone to cut it for us if our income permits. Then we weed whack the edges and use a leaf blower to tidy up. And of course, We use our leaf blowers throughout the fall, blowing leaves into huge piles to be picked up or to burn, which is a horrible practice I'll touch on in a later podcast. An article published in 2019 by John Egan for an e-publication called Lawn Care noted that pre-pandemic, American adults spent 2.3 billion minutes on lawn care. That's 9.6 minutes a day or 60 hours a year for everyone. That number's even higher if you factor in that not every adult has a yard. Think of all those who live in apartments and condos and urban areas. I'll come back to this issue of time in a few minutes. years ago, I read a book by Ted Steinberg called American Green, The Obsessive Quest for the Perfect Lawn. It was published way back in 2006, but it's perhaps even more true today. I wasn't able to reach Dr. Steinberg, who's a history professor at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio, but I think the messages in his book are important, and I'd recommend you all get a copy and read his book. During this podcast series, I'll mention some of what's in the book, and I'll read a few passages. In the book, Dr. Steinberg explains how we got to this place of an obsessive need for a perfect dark green grass lawn. He outlines the history of golf course and lawn insanity, which I'll say a little bit more in a couple of minutes, but also the misinformation and advertising campaigns that ensure that homeowners and business parks all across the country spend billions of dollars a year, countless hours, and even sacrifice health and well-being in the service of grass. Here's a quote from a section about the obsessive use of pesticides and herbicides on residential lawns. Quote, as it turns out, the lawn is like a nationwide chemical experiment with homeowners as guinea pigs. End quote. We'll focus on the impacts of these chemicals on our health and that of other organisms in a future podcast, Despite decades of evidence of the harmful effects, even going back to Rachel Carson's influential book, Silent Spring, published in the 60s, a majority of homeowners continue to buy into the use of chemicals on their lawns. 
Multiple times throughout the growing season, people stop at their local hardware store and pick up gallons of liquid pesticides and blue granules of fertilizer to feed the lawn and kill anything that's not grass. The major companies peddling these toxic chemicals hoodwink us into believing that the monoculture is a healthy goal for families with kids and pets. We drink the Kool-Aid that killing insects and other organisms that might be on our grass will protect us from harm. Nothing could be further from the truth. As we'll explore in future podcasts, fertilizers, herbicides, and insecticides are poisoning us and all the other organisms around us, from birds to bees to pets to kids. The obsession for the perfect green lawn is so severe that we spend billions on chemicals, lawn equipment, and our precious time off from work with the monotony and cacophony of lawn work. Depending on how large our lawn, we might spend most of a day each week on this obsession. Even if you as a homeowner would rather not spend your time this way, your neighborhood exerts pressure on you to conform. The green lawn is a status symbol and how precisely manicured and how much time and money you spend on it shows your neighbors what a great neighbor you are. Those who are most enthusiastic are also the ones most likely to view less assiduous neighbors with disdain. Someone who lets their lawn go is viewed as a bad neighbor, a sloppy person, someone with no respect for the neighborhood. That one bad neighbor can bring down the perceived property value for the whole neighborhood, or so people think. In my neighborhood, about half the residents pay a commercial service to provide the full services of lawn care, including fertilizers, pesticides, weekly cutting, trimming, blowing, and a fall and spring cleanup devoted to getting up every last leaf or pine needle and carting all the rich organic material off-site. Every single evening and or early morning, our ears are assaulted by the noise and odors. Then, on the weekends, the other half of the residents Those who do their own lawns assault us all over again. It's seven days a week. If you want to sit in your yard and drink coffee to the sound of the birds, think again. They are drowned out by the lawn equipment. If you want to have a barbecue dinner party outside in the evening, you'll have to shout to be heard above the lawn equipment. The din is literally causing us to go deaf. I'll talk more about the impact of lawn care on our senses in a later podcast in this series. So already we have a lot of issues to discuss. How our time is spent, how our money is spent, how our senses are affected, how our social standing is affected, how our health is affected, all by this Western societal arbitrary symbol of social standing. Seems crazy to me. First, though, a little more history. How did we become slaves to such a monotonous and useless landscape? Ted Steinberg presents the history of America's lawn obsession and the resulting huge industry egging it on as one linked to 18th century British aristocratic ideals of estates with green, neatly manicured lawns and carefully sculpted flower gardens. Wealthy landowners who colonized North America brought grasses and grazing animals with them and created pastoral pastures where there once had been forests. Think 
George Washington's Mount Vernon Estate, or Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. In the 1870s, with the advent of streetcars, homes in the suburbs outside of cities had setback rules of 30 feet from the streets, and the green grassy front lawn was born in some areas, although the front cottage garden was also popular and necessary for supplemental food. After World War II, the boom of suburbs and the establishment of the five-day work week freed up time and greatly spurred the focus on green lawns all across the country, even in Arizona. Housing developments with streets, uniform houses, each with a tiny fenced backyard and front yards ending at sidewalks, sprang up, along with massive advertising of grass seed, lawn equipment, and lawn chemicals that originated, by the way, from World War II military chemical weapons and other agents. The pressure for neighbors to conform and maintain a neatly manicured lawn grew exponentially. Perhaps this is the origin of phrases like competing with the Joneses and the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Magazines like Good Housekeeping, Sunset, Better Homes and Gardens, they all had copious ads for lawn care maintenance and convinced us that the American dream was a house with a grassy yard, a white picket fence, two kids, a dog, and a cat. Here's another passage from Steinberg's book. Quote, from Georgia to California, Texas to Colorado, the lawn became the verdant incarnation of real estate capitalism, spreading like food coloring in water and turning the national landscape a deep shade of green, unquote. A huge industry grew up around the lawn explosion, and here we are today. The agrochemical industry intentionally created an insatiable suburban craving for lawn chemicals, largely in a shift from agriculture to suburbia in the 1990s and 2000s. In a quote from Paul Robbins in Julie Sharp's 2003 chapter in Antipode called The Lawn Chemical Economy and Its Discontents, quote, What has proven successful is the cultivation of the North American lawn as a site for pesticide and fertilizer use. Agrochemical companies are increasingly finding that yard chemical formulators are their most reliable customers. Changes in the broader economy of agricultural chemical manufacturing have paved the way for increases in the sales of lawn chemicals. As a result, raw, non-agricultural pesticides represent a worldwide market currently worth $7 billion and is growing at 4% per year. 40% of these sales are U.S. households. End quote. This industry has been growing for the past 20 years at actually a rate of 5% or more. The industry, like the tobacco industry and the fossil fuel industry, saturates our culture with ads about how lawns need regular care in the form of mowers, trimmers, edgers, tillers, spreaders, and also of an entire arsenal of chemicals to feed, grow, and protect lawns. Ads show children peacefully at play on a green lawn while dad rides his mower in the background. The ads exhort parents to protect kids from ticks and mosquitoes by treating the lawns with pesticides. Missing from the deluge of messaging about the lawn care industry is any information about the safety or lack thereof and the health dangers of the chemicals. Missing from the ads is the incredible time sink and money pit that is the perfect lawn. 
Missing is the extent of the environmental damage and destruction wrought by this obsession. The relentless focus on green lawns and their required perfection and devoted care permeates our suburban and professional lives. Property values, perceived success of businesses, social status, display of wealth are all wrapped up and delivered in deep green sod. Realtors talk up the lawns. Property values are influenced by a well-kept lawn, they say. The brainwashing is so complete that most of us feel strongly attracted to the ideal of the green lawn. This demand for green was intentionally created by the lawn care industry. It created its own demand through massive advertising, flyers sent home, displays at area hardware stores, TV, radio, and internet advertising. You'll notice this spring the same thing starts happening in February. When I was planning this podcast series, I was curious if there are other podcasts out there to inform the public about the downsides of our green lawn obsession. I discovered there are lots of podcasts devoted to lawn care, most all of them promoting lawn care, seed and grass types, methods of cultivation, and chemicals for perfection. A quick Google search for podcasts about lawn showed hits like 35 Best Lawn Care Podcasts, all about how to achieve the perfect lawn. There was one episode from Freakonomics a number of years ago called How Stupid Is Our Obsession With Lawns? And there was another one in 2021 called Why You Should Stop Using Pesticides and Reimagine Your Lawns with Linda Yen. But you have to scroll through tons of pro-lawn care podcasts to find these few that point to the dark side. The saturation of the pro-lawn, pro-chemical, pro-equipment is absolutely massive. Okay, so this is serious business. We'll discuss the noise pollution effects, the chemical pollution effects, the environmental effects, and the economic effects over the next few podcasts. Today, let's consider the economics of lawns. Let's say your suburban home sits on a half-acre lot with a front and backyard of grass and trees. To cut the grass, you'd need a lawnmower, which can run from a couple hundred to over a thousand bucks. Then the weed whacker and leaf blower. So let's say equipment is about $2,000. And of course, you need to buy fuel for all of this for at least eight months out of the year. Most people still use gas-powered devices, but even battery-operated ones need frequent charging. If you have the income to hire a lawn service with equipment, it'll likely cost from $100 to $200 a week. If you assume a growing season, including fall cleanup, of 32 weeks out of the year, that'll run you $3,200 to $6,400. Most services charge additionally for the chemical applications. If you water your own lawn with sprinklers, the water alone might cost you $50 to $100 a month, depending on where you live and how much rainfall your area gets. Most folks will only water during the peak two months of summer, but some install costly under-turf sprinkler systems. The national average cost for one of these, according to Bob Vila, will run you about $2,500. A 1,000-square-foot lawn might use upwards of 50,000 gallons a year, depending on your local summer weather. 
That's a lot more water for your half acre lot, which could be up to 20,000 square feet or more. If you fertilize your lawn and layer on pesticides to kill weeds like clover or dandelions and to kill insects and larvae, these chemicals are costly, not to mention hazardous to your and your pet's health. And you'll probably buy lawn spreaders. A November 22 report noted that 70 million pounds of pesticides and herbicides are used on U.S. lawns every year. Just from these numbers, it's pretty evident that the lawn care industry is big business on steroids, raking in billions of dollars a year, almost $115 billion in 2021. With very little in the way of regulation to protect health and the environment, something we'll ad- address in a future podcast. Of course, the lawn care industry is also a huge employer. Almost a million landscapers and groundskeepers in the U.S. with a growth rate of 8% per year. That's a lot of labor. A lot of it, though, is low wage and employs a lot of immigrant labor. These groundskeepers often work from sunup to sundown, which in the summer months might be well over 12 hours a day, and many mow 10 to 20 lawns a day. This is hazardous work, with exposure to loud noise, toxic chemicals, dust, and allergens, not to mention the dangers of working as fast as they can with mowers and trimmers. For the many do-it-yourselfers and those who don't have the income needed to pay for a lawn service, which can cost 100 to 200 a week, there's the time all this takes, week after week. Some folks spend nearly half their weekend on their lawn care. Let's just approximate five hours a week for 32 weeks or 160 hours, two full-time weeks a year. That's time you could be spending doing something, anything, less monotonous. That's about the average American's entire vacation time. So much time and money as a homeowner on a green monoculture that you may never really hang out in. I mean, really, if you drive in a neighborhood of 20 homes, all with identical green lawns at any given moment, how many people are actually out there enjoying the lawn? Aren't most of the folks you see out on the lawn actually doing lawn care? Of course, during the pandemic, We saw an increase in homeowners hanging outside. Some worked from home, outside. Many hosted social gatherings outside. Many enhanced outside dining areas. Pre-pandemic, the EPA estimated that Americans spent 90% of their time indoors. It'd be interesting to do another study and see if those pandemic changes are being maintained. It's certainly the case that the lawn industry has exploded its advertising for Americans to expand their front and backyard living spaces with landscape features, outdoor cooking, outdoor living rooms. This has created a huge new market, even beyond the immaculate grass monoculture. folks think they'll have a gorgeous green backyard for the kids to play in or for playing fetch with the dog. But for both of those activities, it seems possible people feel compelled to put up a fence for privacy from the neighbors. Why then does the grass have to be immaculate, particularly when lawn chemicals are toxic to kids and pets? A 2022 survey estimated that kids spend less than five hours a week playing outside 
And for many, that time is soccer practice or baseball practice in parks for much of the year instead of free play in their own yards. We've seen, particularly during and after the pandemic, more people do use their spaces to gather, and there's more interest in outdoor seating areas and cooking areas, that's all true. And there's some slowly growing interest in landscaped areas along the edges of lawns. Wouldn't it be great to increase these areas and de-emphasize the huge, useless, and monotonous expanse of green? Wouldn't it be far more attractive to have a lush, multi-textured, multi-level, and diverse meadow with native flowers of all colors and shapes? Or a colorful desert landscape with rocks and native plants? In fact, with persistent droughts in the West and water supply issues, some areas are trying to break the spell. I walked through a neighborhood in San Diego that was filled with clay tile roofed homes with small yards set back about 50 feet from the sidewalk. Each yard was unique, filled with decorative rocks and pebbles of different colors, with drought-hardy native plants from cool blue-gray yucca and agave to dark green cacti towering next to clay walls to flowering rosemary, lavender, and salvia. Some had terracotta pot container gardens or pergolas with pink trumpet vines. The colors and textures made for a much more engaging walk than strolling past endless squares of the same variety of grass. But progress is slow, and meanwhile, the toxic effects of our lawn fetish are building up. Over the coming weeks in this series of podcasts, we'll take a closer look at the impacts of the American obsession with the green expanse of lawn. I'm Kate Sussman for Toxic. Thanks for tuning in. The music for today's show comes to you from Jason Shaw, courtesy of Audionautics.com.